Let's talk about how we can love him in return as we close out this series on hard conversations. If you're just joining us, that's what we've been doing for the last couple weeks. We've, all right. We've been talking about hard conversations and how to do them well. And what we're going to do today is we're going to turn our attention to the workplace. How do we have hard conversations in a God-honoring way in the workplace? This is important for a lot of reasons, um, one of which is we spend a crazy amount of our time at work. When people add up the hours and they divide it by the hours that we're actually awake, some people get the number at about 35%, about 35% more than a third of our adult life that we're awake. We spend it at work. Now, if your work teams are focused and they are um, supportive and they're productive, then work can be rewarding and it can be engaging and it can be satisfying. And isn't that what God intended when he put the first two people in the Garden of Eden and he said, here's some meaningful work. Have at it. Meaningful work is a gift. It's a gift. But if your workplace is like most workplaces on the planet, then there's all these office politics that can leave you not only longing for the weekend but scanning the want ads. Now, here's a thought um, that comes to me. If your workplace is a dysfunctional mess, is there a chance that this is one of the ways you can love God in return? Is there a chance that he has you there for a reason? That maybe there's something that he would have you to do to bring that kingdom of his into your workplace. Maybe if things are messed up, maybe God is calling you to be part of the solution. I, I was thinking about this when we were singing that song, um, Here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. Maybe he's whispering to you, I already have. I already have. I already have. And here's what you could do to, to make a difference in my name. Well, one of the things that we can do to live these things out is to take a look at the teaching that Jesus gives us today. And this is straight up a teaching from Jesus. This is from his own lips. So if you have your Bibles, let's open up. And I encourage you to open up today. The context to this is absolutely crucial, as context always is. But especially in this passage, it's, some, it's fun. In fact, there's something I just noticed right before the start of the service, I'll mention it, um, that I missed as I was wrestling with this all week. All right, we're going to look at a, a chapter of the Bible, Matthew 18, and we're going to start um, with verse, 20, uh, verse 18. So let's take a look there. I want to let you know, too, if you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love to give you one free today. We keep copies um, at our entrance slash exits every week. Jennifer tells me we've been going through a lot of Bibles, and I love that. So thanks for being generous so that we can be generous to others. All right, here we go. The teaching we're going to look at today, as I mentioned earlier, comes directly from the lips of Jesus of Nazareth. I love how one scholar refers to this section. He says, this passage that we're going to look at is both severely practical and ruthlessly idealistic. Love that. Intense or severely practical and ruthlessly idealistic. That is a great combination of things if you're trying to cast a vision. A vision for a new community. A community where we resolve our interpersonal conflicts in a God-honoring way. So enough introduction. Here we go. Matthew chapter 18, starting with verse 15. With this verse 15, not 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've what? You've gained a brother. Well, last week, we applied practical, um, biblical principles to our families. That's where we spent our time last week. 
what is the metaphor that Jesus uses here for us if we're his disciples? We are, his, we are family, right? We're family. We're brothers and sisters. So that's the metaphor he gives us. So this applies not just to our nuclear families. This applies to us as brothers and sisters in Christ. When the world looks at how Christians treat one another, it should be like looking in on a close-knit family that's in it together, richer for poor, better for worse, sickness and in health. We'll have our differences, but we're in it together. And our goal is reconciliation. In, as Christians, the ultimate goal in all of our hard conversations is reconciliation. We're to set out to restore what's broken. And one of the first steps towards reconciliation is right here. As this section opens up, it's a face-to-face conversation. Exactly. If something isn't right, Jesus instructs us to go directly to the source and have an honest one-on-one talk. And isn't it amazing? Isn't it astonishing how many of us disregard that teaching from Jesus? It's so easy to do. If you've been hurt, if you're confused by something that another Christian has said or done, if you're concerned that a Christian brother or sister is behaving in a manner that's dishonest or immoral or disrespectful or dangerous, Jesus says, go talk about it. Go have that conversation. Truth-telling is a gift. Truth-telling is a gift, even if it's a hard gift to give and even if it's a hard gift to receive. And the Scripture says, if reconciliation happens then that thing happens that I had you say out loud. That thing is what? You've gained a brother. You've gained a sister. Isn't that beautiful? Came across a great quote uh, during my sermon prep this week. Uh, It says this, Forgiveness doesn't mean saying it didn't really happen or it didn't really matter. Forgiveness is when it did happen and it did matter and you're going to deal with it in a God-honoring way. There are those who would say that a hard conversation, if done well, can actually make the bond stronger. I had a picture in my head of a a crack. Imagine that we're all on a, well, we are all on a floor, all right? So imagine, if you will, that we're all on a floor, and there's a crack in the foundation beneath us, in one of the beams, a big crack. Now, you can just paint over that crack, and that's what a lot of Christians we do, right? We just play Christian nice, and we just paint over it, and we say, oh, you're forgiven, without really going to that place. Well, if you go to that place, let's pretend these are wood beams that are holding us up. If you go to that place, for some people, their experience is if you go there well, it's like getting that great carpenter's glue where the bond is actually stronger than the wood around it when you're done. There are some people, that's their experience with reconciliation. They go to that hard place because it did matter. They have that hard conversation. They do it as best they can. God meets them there, and the relationship is actually stronger than it was before because they went to that difficult place. But let's say you do that. You do as best you can, as much as it depends on you. You go to that hard place, and they don't respond. Jesus sees that that might be a possibility among us. And so that brings us right to verse 16. So let's take a look here. If he or she does not listen, then take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Let's go one more verse. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, it's interesting. Jesus quotes scripture here. When he says the two or three more witnesses part, he's actually quoting Deuteronomy 19, 15. And he says, go, try, try to go to that person directly. If they're not receptive, then bring in a couple others. 
And there's so many good things that can happen when you do that, right? When you bring others in, there's some good things that can happen. You might realize, wait a minute, whoa, I was the one wrong here. That would be one of the things. But so many good things happen when you have a face-to-face conversation, when you begin to have others weigh in with outside perspectives. So many good things can happen if you get the right people to come in and mediate. So that might happen and it might not work, right? It still might not work. And if this person absolutely refuses after all of these steps, then what does Jesus say if there won't be reconciliation? He says, treat that person as you would what? A Gentile or a tax collector. Now, I was struck, and I even wrote this down in my notes, I was struck by how Jesus' answer sounds so unchristian. And I'm like, where did that come from? Where did it come from? There's, not, there's a number of things that Jesus says that doesn't sound very Christian. I think that says something about our culture, doesn't it? When Jesus says things to us that don't sound Christian. Well, right after Jesus gives this hard teaching, he gives a dramatic promise. Here's something that Jesus says can happen if his people get this right. If we get this right, if we get reconciliation right, not if, but when we disagree, if we get that right, if we pursue his righteousness as one united family, look what he says will happen. This continues the thought. This is the very next verse. Truly, I say to you, says Jesus of Nazareth, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth should be loosed in heaven. Again, Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done to them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, I am among them. Now, truth be told, I've, I've taught on Matthew 18 more times than I can count. Guess how many times I've connected these two passages? I always stop before this one, before verse 18. This is part of the same thought, isn't it? The language is the same. The flow of the conversation is the same. There's no breaks. These two things are connected. Sometimes it takes me so long to get something, right? To which my wife said, amen. <laughs> you know, but this is, this, is all, this is all the same. Jesus has not moved on to a different topic. If we get reconciliation right, if two or three of us gather in his name, and we're united as Christian brothers and sisters. We're under the lordship of the Father so that we're praying according to his will. We're living according to his will. His promise is there for us. It's as if he's saying, invite me to heal what's broken among you, and then watch what else I can bind. Watch what else I can lose. If I can fix a rift between people, I can do anything. Now, if we had more time, it would be really fun to jump from Matthew 18 to Acts chapter 2 and to Acts chapter 4. I'd encourage you even to write in your notes, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, Matthew 18, and take a look at those together because what's described here happened. What's described here in Matthew 18 happened in Acts 2 and it happened in Acts 4. They came together as one family and God did those things as they did the best they could under his lordship to heal what was broken. All right, God wants our relationships as brothers and sisters in Christ to shine brightly like a city on a hill in the middle of the night. So let's press into a little more deeply five characteristics of a Matthew 18 culture, and then we're going to talk about how to apply them at work. 
So let's talk about this culture that God wants us to have among Christian brothers and sisters, and then we'll quickly apply it to work. So here are five characteristics, or maybe quite a few more. Here are five that I'd like to look at today. The number one is face-to-face conversations. Let's just start right there. And let's also just be honest and be direct and be blunt. Churchgoers are infamous for sending anonymous notes, aren't they? <laughs> See, it's not just me. Others, others, you know, they're infamous for sending anonymous notes. Can the person who receives an on- anonymous note do Matthew 18? They can't, can they? You've not given them a gift. You've given them a burden because now they have this thing that they know is out there that they can't do anything about because they, they, they don't know who sent it. And here's another thing. Can the person who sent the note be sure that the message that they were trying to send was the message that was received? No. Does it ever happen where you send a message that's committed, communicated by words and it isn't received the right way? Yes. Do you know if it was? If you don't have a conversation, no. Here's a great quote that speaks to all of this. This is from the book Crucial Conversations. The single biggest problem in communication is the illusion that it's actually taking place. I love that quote. My experience is that people that write notes often have important perspectives to share. I'm not diminishing what that person has when they're trying to communicate through a note. They have an important perspective to share. What I would add to that is that the person you're sending it to probably has an important perspective too, right? And, and you don't know this unless you have the conversation. So I want to encourage people, have conversations. Now, a signed note is a little bit better. An email is a little bit better. A phone conversation is a little bit better. But Jesus nailed it face-to-face. Those who study communication, those who study communication would tell you there is so much that happens in a face-to-face conversation that cannot happen any other way. Honest face-to-face conversations are just one characteristic of a Matthew 18 culture. Here's another. Another characteristic of a Matthew 18 culture, things that, that God would want us to have in our, in our midst is truth-telling. Truth-telling. Please repeat after me. Facts are our friends. One more time. Facts are our friends. Facts are our friends. How many of you know with a show of hands that truth-telling is a gift? How many of you know that, right? If it's done well, if it's done well, if it's not, it can be really mean-spirited, all that kind of stuff. Truth-telling, if it's done well, is a gift. It is a gift you can give. It is a gift you can receive. But here's the problem, one of the problems. It's often hard to distinguish the truth from the stories that we make up in our heads because something happens, and then we ascribe a whole lot of story to the facts, and our story may not be the truth. That's why one of the most important skills a person can have when it comes to a hard conversation, start with the facts, not the story. Start with the facts, not the story. Most of us don't do that so often that there's a name that's ascribed to what we do. It's called the fundamental attribution error. And what that means is when we make a mistake and when we have trouble keeping a commitment, what we tend to do is to blame our circumstances. When someone else makes a mistake, we don't blame their circumstances, we blame them. It is a character deficiency, it's because they're lazy, it's because they don't care, it's because they're disrespectful. And so what we want to try to do is this new skill, this discipline that's new to many of us, and that is when something happens, we have that hard conversation, start with the facts. I noticed this. Instead of, how come you always, whatever. Here's the third characteristic of a Matthew 18 culture. So important. In a Matthew 18 culture, a clear conflict resolution 
pathway exists. There's some way to resolve things. And it's marked out, and the, and the community knows upon what it is. A clear com- conflict resolution pathway exists. Jesus gave his followers a clear pathway to resolution. If you got something going on, go to that person. That doesn't work, bring some witnesses. That doesn't work, tell it to the church. That doesn't work, you have to say, I'm sorry. Sorry, excuse me, we're going to have to part ways. I remember having lunch. I, I asked the CEO um, if he would give me some mentorship, give me some wisdom. So we get together about once a month. And he used language for this that I'll never forget. He said, side conversations, meaning when you don't go directly to the person, side conversations result in faulty or reinforce faulty thinking. Let me say that again. And this time get it right. Side conversations reinforce faulty thinking. That is so true. When we feel that we're right and someone else is wrong, and then we go and share our story with everybody else about how horrible they are, how they're the the villain and we're the, the victim in all of this, what we do is that they only hear our side of the story and so they say, wow, I can't even believe you haven't whatever. Instead of them getting the rest of the facts or the rest of the story. If you're a team leader, one of the best gifts you can do and one of the best gifts you can give your team is a clear resolution pathway so that stuff doesn't go sideways. But instead people know how can it go forward. And that those that want to have a hard conversation the right way can actually know what is that right way. What is that right way? Because they're going to have conversations about what happens. How do we give them that gift of here's the right way to handle that? Now, none of this matters. The first three don't even matter if we don't have number four. Here's a fourth characteristic of a Matthew 18 culture. That in a, in a Matthew 18 culture, there is a clear conflict resolution pathway that is what? It's actually enforced. It doesn't just exist, but it's actually enforced. There's another thing that doesn't sound very Christian that Jesus taught us is important. None of this matters if we choose to look the other way when people behave badly. A clear conflict resolution pathway is meaningless if it's not enforced or if it's only enforced selectively. Now, you'll notice in your notes there's a fifth characteristic. I want to hit pause on the fifth characteristic. We're going to come back to that at the very end. What right now I'd encourage you to write down is this. Your office isn't exempt from our great commission. What we've been talking about right now are principles that God's given us as brothers and sisters in Christ. They're too good to keep to ourselves. Because can you imagine how every workplace in the world would be transformed if we could bring this to the workplace? And we could be examples for this and advocate for this in the workplace. Our office isn't exempt from our great commission. Our great commission is to go and to teach everything that Jesus taught us. Did Jesus teach us this? Yes. So this is part of what it means to teach whatever, everything that Jesus teaches us. To, to, to teach the, a way to resolve differences that's more God-honoring. Jesus never intended us to practice these principles in isolation. We're also called to do our absolute best to live out these principles in our offices. And I intentionally used wordplay here because the word office can mean your place of work. It also can mean your position in your place of work. We've been sent by God to bear witness to the things that Jesus did and Jesus taught. And here's a great reminder as you set out to do that. This is Romans 12, 18. I use this one a lot. As much as it depends on you. I need that reminder because I often feel the burden of, i got to fix this. I can't. All I can do is this as much as it depends on me and God working in and through me. 
Well, we may or may not be able to bring about the changes we hope to see, but as much as it depends on us, we're to bring Jesus' example and teachings with us to work. And as we do, here's two tips now as we talk about how do you apply this in the workplace in just a couple minutes. Here are two tips if you're the boss, and here are two tips if you're not the boss. Here are two reminders as you try to bring these principles to the workplace if you're the boss. Number one, leaders are example setters. Number two, leaders get what they allow. Can I get an amen on those? Okay, really soft-spoken amen. I was exp- you must all be the boss. And you're like, oh, yeah, amen. All right, if you're the leader of your team, a Matthew 18 culture is a gift that you can bring. We have to remember that. It's a gift that we can bring our teams to have this culture. In fact, sometimes it's only a gift that only we can bring as the team leaders. So it is vitally important that we as the leaders, we set the example. We have to welcome feedback as hard as it is sometimes. We have to welcome it, saying this is a gift. I need to this. And we have to also make it safe to be heard. Safe to be heard. If people are doing the best they can to bring a hard word in a God-honoring way, we have to do the best we can to make it safe for them to do that. And the other thing we've got to do is we've got to hold people accountable when they don't. Even if they're our highest performers, it's going to shipwreck and torpedo everything else if we allow this to continue. My favorite book on the topic of hard conversations besides the Bible itself is a book called Crucial Conversations. I've handed out about a dozen of these. I've only read the thing, I think, in the spring, and I've handed about a dozen of these out to other people. I've read it myself, marked it all up. It's a great book. The authors make this claim in pages 13 and 14. They say this, when it comes to culture and and trying to fix what's broken in in your place of work, most leaders get it wrong. They think that organizational productivity and performance are simply about policies and processes and structures or systems. So when their software product doesn't ship on time, they benchmark others' developmental processes. Or when productivity flags, they tweak their performance management system. When teams aren't cooperating, they restructure. Our research shows that these types of non-human changes fail more often than they succeed. That's because the real problem, most of the time, never was the process or system or structure. It was employee behavior. The real key to change lies not in implementing a new process. Sometimes it does, but not always. Not a new process, but it gets, it's about getting that employee behavior right. We've got to hold people accountable to the process. That's what crucial conversation skills are all about. In the worst companies, poor performers are first ignored and then transferred. In good companies, bosses eventually deal with problems. In the best company, everyone holds everyone else accountable regardless of level or position. Now, this quote leads right into the next section. Here are two reminders if you're not the boss. How many of you know that your boss can't create a Matthew 18 culture on her own? How many know that, right? It, It takes all of us. It takes all of us. We all share the responsibility for a Matthew 18 culture regardless of our position on the office flow chart. So here are two reminders when you're not the boss. Number one, point people to the proper pathway whatever it is in your place of employment, point people to that proper pathway. If someone on your team has a problem with someone on your team, one of the best things you can do, point that person in the right direction, stay away from gossip, stay out of side conversations, do your best, get people talking directly to the person they should talk to. That's number one. But number two is equally as important. Disagree with tact and then commit with tenacity. 
I'd love to spend more time than we have to spend on this one because in every job, there's going to be times where your team makes a decision that you disagree with. It's going to happen in every organization. Now, if they're asking you to do something that's immoral or wrong, that's one conversation. But let's say it's not. Let's say your team makes a decision that you just disagree with. You have a different opinion. There's nothing morally wrong with the decision. Well, if that's the case, then it is wrong. Biblically, if you torpedo that thing by either giving less than your best or going around with side conversations saying, well, what they should have done was, that's not God-honoring. So if you disagree with the direction the team is going and it's not immoral, it's not sin, well, first speak up ahead of time on the front end. Speak candidly, speak directly, speak, in fact, that's important, speak with humility. But once the decision is made, don't undermine it or give yourself half-heartedly to it. The word says, Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, go after it with what? With all your heart as serving the Lord, not human masters. And this just plays out. This is so important because in sports, when they call a play, almost every play can succeed if it's executed well, right? And almost every play is guaranteed to fail if the team's not committed to the play. Same is true in our places of work. Okay, now there's more that could be said about all these things we've said so far, but our time is extremely limited on a Sunday morning, so let's take a few minutes to look at what might be the most important part of all this. Let's now circle back to that final characteristic, characteristic number five of a Matthew 18 culture. A Matthew 18 culture is not complete if we stop at verse 20. Please write down this fifth characteristic of a Matthew 18 culture. It's this. A Matthew 18 culture has a clear restoration pathway that is embraced. In a distinctly Matthew 18 culture, there is a clear restoration pathway that is embraced. If we stop at verse 20, we're going to find ourselves playing a game of sanctimonious survivor instead of practicing authentic Christianity. Why? Because a Matthew 18 culture is not complete if there's not a restoration pathway for those who make a mistake and later realize I was wrong. We have to account for that. If you stop at verse 20, you might get really, really good at finger pointing. And that's not the goal. Finger pointing is not the goal. The goal is restoration. Exactly. Jesus anticipates that people might forget this, and so he includes this story. Let's pick up now with verse 21. Then Peter came up and said, Jesus, Lord, how, how, how often will my brother sin against me and I must forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus says to him, I say to you not seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, this is fascinating. I did a little research into this. And Peter, being a Jew, was given a really generous answer here. Because in the Old Testament, you can find texts like Job 33 and in Amos 1 and Amos 2, where if you give, forgive someone three times, you're being a very forgiving person. So Peter, I think, is stepping up here. I'm reading into the story a little bit, but Peter appears at least to me to be saying, here's my story. Here's my story, right? Peter is saying, um, perhaps, that... What, what if we take three forgivenesses, double that, add one, so we get that number, that perfect number seven, right, number of completeness? What if we do that? If we do that, Jesus, if we go through this whole Matthew 18 thing with the same person like John over here seven times, is, is that 
enough then to vote them off the island if we do that? And Jesus' reply is, hey, and some scholars translate this as 77 times. Some say it's 70 times 7. Is the specific number important? No, Jesus is making a point here. He goes, no, not three times, not seven. It's 77 times, 70 times 7. You extend grace as much as you need to extend grace. In fact, the point here is to extend a grace that's reflective of the grace that's been extended to us. And so Jesus goes on and he illustrates this with a story, picking up with verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle his accounts with his servants. And he began to settle. One was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he couldn't pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment was to be made. Now, if you have a study Bible or if you've researched this, does anyone know the rough equivalent in today's dollars of 10,000 talents? What is it? It's like $6 billion. That's a pretty big debt, right? To owe somebody. So this guy owes his employer $6 billion. Is Jesus' point that he literally owed him $6 billion? No. His point is, you, he, this guy owes so much money, he could never pay it back. Never pay it back. $6 billion. So the servant who owed $6 billion, as we pick up with verse 26, fell to his knees, imploring his master. He said, have patience with me, and I'll pay you everything. Can he pay him back? No, he owes him $6 billion. Well, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him he forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe. Well, the conversion here is about 12,000 bucks. Big amount of money. How does it compare to $6 billion? Doesn't stack up very much, right? And what does he do? He starts choking the guy. Even though he had been forgiven himself, he starts to throttle this other dude. So picking up with verse 29, so his fellow servant fell down and got loose and pleaded with him and said, have patience with me and I'll pay you. He refused and sent him into prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. I wrote here to my note to self, People are watching, aren't they? People are watching how we respond to one another. Then his master summoned that servant to him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. How long is it going to take in jail? to pay back $6 billion. <laughs> I don't know. Long time. And then Jesus says something very unchristian again. So also my heavenly Father will do to you, every one of you, if you don't forgive your brother from your heart. Came across another great quote as I was preparing this week. This one's so good, I printed it on the back of your notes along with a whole lot more of the quote that I don't have time to get into today. I'd encourage you to really read and reflect on that. Here's part of that small quote, or smaller part of that bigger quote. Every time you accuse someone else, you accuse yourself. Every time you forgive someone else, though, you just pass it on a drop of water out of the bucketful that God has already given you. From God's point of view, the distance between 
being ordinarily sinful, what we all are, and extremely sinful, what other people we don't like seem to be, is like the distance between London and Paris seen from the point of view of the sun. Isn't that good? I think that's good. We have a heavenly Father who loves us enough to tell us the truth. And he extends amazing grace to those who stand in need of it. So here's the question as we sing songs like, Here I am, send me. Do those things describe us? Is this teaching from Jesus descriptive of us? Because every one of us has co-workers in need of grace. Every one of us has co-workers in need of truth. Will we follow Jesus' example when it comes to speaking the truth in love? And another thing is I look at all the context here because I've never, I don't think I've ever, and some of you have been with me a long time, I don't think I've ever taught both of these past sections of Scripture together. And I also haven't linked in the one that becomes before these two where Jesus is looking for the lost person. He goes out and searches for the lost person. Is that the approach we're taking where we're actually seeking out potential hard conversations so that we can bring restoration? Or are we just, I'm staying out of this. Sometimes it's the right thing to do to stay out. Other times it's not. Are we actually walking towards hard conversations with the hope of bringing reconciliation into our workplaces? The more we reflect on the good news, the gospel, the more equipped and motivated we become to become agents of reconciliation. As we reflect deeply on this, Jesus was the good shepherd who went out and searched for us when we were lost, when we needed reconciliation. He didn't give up on us. He came to us and he demonstrated his love for us by sending his one and only son. Wow. And, and, and even beyond just the example that sets and even the intellectual things that does, when we embrace that gospel by saying, God, right here, right now, I turn from my sin, I turn to you. And we ask for that forgiveness, it really happens. And we can ask God for the filling of his Holy Spirit to change our minds and change our hearts from within so that it comes from a real deep place rather than just a principle. That's what can happen when we respond to the gospel. And then when a whole bunch of us as brothers and sisters respond to that gospel together and we live it out together, and some great things can happen. People can see something different in us, and then we're better equipped to bring these teachings to work. And when we do, we're going to stand out. So let me give you one last um, illustration here. This one doesn't come from Jesus. This one comes from me. And hopefully the Holy Spirit speaking to me. We have a picture here we're going to put on the screen. I was sitting down, and I was watching TV. Some of you might remember this. I was watching TV, and one of my daughters happened to be there. It was an ESPN um, special, a, one of those 30 for 30 specials called Chasing Tyson. And they were documenting what a contrast between a boxer named Mike Tyson and a boxer named Evander Holyfield. And they were chronicling these two people leading up to this particular fight, the second of their two fights that happened on June 28, 1997. And in this fight, as Evander Holyfield was winning for the second time, what did Mike Tyson do twice? He bit Evander Holyfield's ear really, really hard. He took a chunk out of it. And then, no, stop, she said. Okay, so we, let's move on. You know what? You don't have to look at the picture if you don't want, but, but I got to leave it up for just a second. Now, what I'd never known before, I'd never, I'd never watched the fight, and I had never really 
known a lot of the details about the fight, but I'm watching this special, and as Holyfield gets bit that second time, and he's just like, you could just see he wanted to just come at Tyson, and Tyson's like, come on, come on, let's go, you know, and his bench, his corner, Holyfield's corner says something like this, Evander, keep your eyes on the Lord, (laughs) remember the Lord, or something like that, and I was just so struck by the contrast. Because what Tyson did was just a natural extension of his corner and the the way that his people were training him and speaking into his life. What he did in that ring was just a natural extension of that. And the way that Holyfield chose not to respond when he was bitten was also indicative of his people, his corner, and what they were encouraging him to do. And this is going to be way too literal for a lot of people. I know it's not cool to be literal, but I looked at this. His last name, Holy Field. Holy Field. The word holy means sacred. It means set apart. What if our conversations were holy? What if that was our goal? If we said, God, would you do this in our lives? Would you make us agents of your reconciliation in all ways, including our hard conversations? Would you make our hard conversations holy? We can click this off now. Thanks, Kevin. What if God did that among us? And what if he was doing that among us in such a way where we were encouraging one another as we went to our place of employment to do the same? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the examples all around us. Thank you for the example of the martyrs who literally laid down their lives for your cause. Lord, when we think of what so many people, even today, right now, are going through for their faith, how small it seems for us to try to bring reconciliation into our workplaces and to honor you there. And Lord, certainly, even the the greatest sacrifice we could give as a human doesn't even compare to the sacrifice of your son. So, Lord, may your gospel fill us right now and may we respond to it. May we offer ourselves completely. You gave your life for us. We may offer our entire lives to you, our words, our mouths, our grudges, our lack of forgiveness, our our lack of courage. May we surrender everything to you that we may be filled with your spirit and we may be your agents of reconciliation in a world that really, really needs it. Lord, we're so thankful that you don't give up on us when we fail. Help us not to give up on one another. Help us to cheer one another on. Help us to hold one another accountable. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you'd like to continue this conversation or anything, there's people that would love to pray with you, and I know both of those two, and they are awesome at reconciliation. So if you've got some hard situations in your life, some hard conversations that you'd like prayer for, they would love to pray for you with, about that or anything. Well, God bless you. We're starting a brand new series next week as we head into Christmas time.